Hello, I am your host, Samuel Hansen, and you are listening to Strongly Connected Components, brought to you by AcmeScience.com. My guest on today's episode is Dave Richeson, mathematician, educator, and author. We will discuss why exactly he's on Twitter, how he got such an amazing faculty website, and just how you should really go about writing mathematics. Here we go. Oh, my uh, guest on today's episode is Dave Richeson, the chair of the Department of Mathematics and Computer Science at Dickinson College, as well as a award-winning author. Hello, Professor Richeson. Hi. Nice to be on the program. Well, it's uh, fantastic uh, having you on here. So uh, it, when we first uh, started talking to one another, it was a bit ago, and it was on, uh, on Twitter. And Twitter's not something that most people think of as anything other than uh, where either celebrities or comedy nerds hang out. So what made you decide as a mathematician that Twitter is a good platform for uh, you to be using? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. Um, <clears throat> uh, Dickinson had a pilot program uh, two years ago called the Willoughby Fellows Program. And the idea behind this program was to uh, immerse uh, a group of faculty members in current technology and just uh, showcase all the, sort of the new the new things that are out there. So this is two summers ago, and Twitter was one of the ones that, uh, that uh, I was introduced to. And so I had a Twitter account then, and at first it seemed like a novelty, but um, the, more, uh, the more I used it and continue to use it, the more I find that it's a really great way of uh, sharing information and getting information and meeting new people and getting ideas about things. And um, I've really found it as a, a, a nice resource for uh, disseminating and uh, collecting interesting information about mathematics and, and all kinds of other things. Well, uh, Twitter is not uh, the only uh, tech resource that you happen to leverage on a regular basis. Uh, if you go down to the bottom of your uh, website, there's a list of like nine or ten <laughs> different links to various uh, online uh, social websites, essentially, that people can uh, follow you at. And so there's this, this program at Dickinson that you're talking about, and you've, you've been using Twitter. What made you so interested in uh, really leveraging technology uh, in this way in both the classroom? Because I know that you've used uh, podcasting in the classroom, so you're not, you're not unused right. to this right. this medium. Uh, what made you really interested in integrating technology into mathematics classrooms, which honestly is not a thing that's generally done? Right. Um, well, you know, one of the things Dickinson prides itself on is innovative teaching. And, um, you know, it, I, I, just to sort of go into a classroom and lecture, uh, that mode of teaching is, is fine and it has its place, but um, it's interesting to try to spice it up with other uh, other activities and, and different things to uh, engage the student and, and so forth. And so I've been, uh, you know, before this Willoughby's Fellow Program and part of, and 
as a participant in this program, I've tried all sorts of things. So um, I taught a history of math class uh, in which I had students do two podcasts. So they, uh, the first one, they profiled a famous mathematician. And then the second one, I had them profile some great theorem or problem or idea in mathematics. And, um, and the instructions were that it had to be short. I gave them specific, a specific length and it needed to be for a, a general audience, so not a mathematically sophisticated audience. And um, the students really enjoyed it. And um, it was, honestly, it was a challenge for them to bring these complicated ideas down to a level that anyone can understand. Um, I've tried some other things using blogs or comments on blogs in my classroom. Um, I've used wikis in some of my classes where um, students would uh, um, you know, create a solution key for the homework, uh, for example, uh, on a wiki. The, the class as a whole would do that. Um, and then I've done, used some other technologies uh, as well. And uh, sometimes they are successful experiments and sometimes they're less successful, um, but it's, it's worth trying and I think uh, it's the way of the future. Uh, I, I definitely am not going to disagree with you on that, <laughs> considering that I run a couple of podcasts about <laughs> talking about math. Uh, now, another, another thing I, I, on your website, and spending a lot of time, I, I find your website absolutely fascinating, actually. It's, oh, thank you. It's by far one of the best uh, faculty websites I've come across. You also have a, a miscellaneous section on the right-hand side. And, uh -huh. and one thing you have there is a link to an article on the nuts and bolts of writing mathematics. Right, yep. And so, considering that you, you write about math on Twitter, you've had your students write about it in blog comments on wikis, and you also have a uh, blog yourself, uh, what sort of differences do you view in the writing of mathematics on, say, the internet, and the writing of mathematics that's talked about in the article, which is much more writing it in a formal setting? Yeah, um, I think this is uh, something that it takes a while for students to figure out, is that writing, uh, it's important to write to your audience. And figuring out who your audience is is, is a key part of, of writing well, um, regardless of what you're writing. Um, so I have one audience, which is, you know, me personally, I have one audience when I write on my blog, which uh, would be probably people I would consider mathematical enthusiasts. They may, have, um, they may have mathematical training or they may just like math. Um, and then I have a different audience when I'm writing research papers that are going to be published in mathematical journals and a different audience perhaps for my book that I wrote. Um, and um, it's, uh, it's the, the distinctions are sort of subtle and the, you know, the number of formulas you use and the, uh, the level of rigor and uh, things like that need to be adjusted in either case. Um, one of the things that... Uh, uh, one of the things that I hammered home with my students when they did their podcast, though, is that you always have to tell the truth. So even if you're writing it for a general audience and you can't uh, go into all the mathematical details, you can't make it so simple that it's not mathematically true anymore. And I think that is one of the things that uh, makes popular math writing a real challenge, is, is keeping it honest and true, but also accessible to uh, less sophisticated, mathematically sophisticated audiences. Well, I mean, speaking about writing math for a general audience, and you just referenced it, you did uh, have a book that came out recently that's uh, Euler's Gem. Yep. And it won the uh, Euler Prize for Mathematical Writing. 
it's a, it's a really it's a really fantastic book, and I know that a lot of your your research interests are in topology, and Euler's Gem talks about the polyhedral uh, characteristic. Can you explain a little bit about why you decided that this was the topic that you were going to write on? Sure. Um, so Euler's polyhedron formula. One of the things that I mentioned uh, early on in the book is that this is a uh, beloved formula uh, by mathematicians. Um, I mentioned that there was a, a survey uh, in the 90s by the Mathematical Intelligencer magazine of what uh, the readers thought was the most beautiful theorem in mathematics, and this was, this was voted number two. So it was the number two most beautiful theorem. Um, however, um, you know, although I was, took a lot of math classes in high school and was a math major in college, I, wasn't, I was, didn't learn about the polyhedron formula until I got to graduate school. And so that right, that right there is an interesting fact. Um, and once I did learn about it, it, it just seemed to show up again and again in all these different uh, areas of math that I studied. And, um, and I, I felt that they were, uh, you know, that it was elementary enough that it could be explained to people who were not in graduate school in math. Um, and so, and uh, there didn't seem to be a, a book on the market that, uh, that talked about the polyhedron formula in the way that I thought uh, it should be treated. And so, um, so that's sort of how the idea began. It's like, this would be a great book, and no one has written it yet. Um, and so that was, that was what sort of got me started on this project. Yeah, it's surprisingly enough, the, uh, uh, the formula that uh, it lost out to was another of Euler's. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yes, he, has, yeah, he is, was an extremely prolific mathematician and proved a lot of uh, really beautiful formulas, that's for sure. Yep. So uh, the structure of the book is, is interesting. You spend the good first half of the book or so talking about the history of it uh, up until Euler. And then after that, you start talking about some of the applications that it has to other math problems as also as real-world problems. What are some of the more interesting applications that the polyhedral formula has to the real world? Um, that's a good question. The, the what's it good for question. I mean, I think uh, just to, to sort of uh, say what, how I really feel is that, is that a formula does not need to have applications to be important. I think beauty in and of itself is, uh, you know, is sufficient. Um, and this is not, it is not an applied math formula that, uh, you know, that you would use to build a bridge or something like that. Oh, yes. Uh, I, however, I'm sorry, I, I didn't mean, uh, no, I, no, I didn't no, mean no. real world. No, I, I agree yeah. about the... The yeah. beauty of math. How about uh, what sort of applications to other areas of mathematics? Yeah, sure. Yeah, sure. Um, so uh, really, this is uh, so the theorem, which says sort of in the in the most basic form that if you have a polyhedron such as a cube or a pyramid or a soccer ball, um, and you count the number of vertices and the number of edges and the number of faces, if you take the number of vertices minus the number of edges plus the number of faces, you will always get two, at least for for a a simple polyhedron, um, and it sort of started out as sort of a, you know, curiosity, like, isn't this cool? Um, but really, it turned out to be a deep theorem about how things are built and the structures of things, and really, it's important that um, vertices are zero-dimensional, and edges are one-dimensional, and faces are two-dimensional, um, and so often, uh, when you're studying the structure of things, sort of the topology of things, this relationship uh, comes to the forefront, that it really characterizes the object that you're studying. Um, so some examples that I talk about in the book 
um, are, uh, for example, the, the four-color theorem, which is uh, one of the most well-known unsolved problems for uh, several hundred years until it was proven in the uh, uh, 1970s. Um, and uh, it talks about planar graphs and um, Euler's polyhedron. Uh, Euler's theorem makes an appearance there. Um, things like classifying knots, so knotted loops of string that are connected at their ends, you know, being able to tell them apart. Um, there's a, a neat theorem which talks about uh, vector fields on surfaces. And so an example would be uh, you know, wind patterns on the Earth. Um, and there's, you can use Euler's formula to show that, uh, that topologically speaking, we're certain that there's a place on Earth where there's no wind. At every instant in time, there's some place on Earth where there's no wind. And this is a uh, topological fact and not a, not a meteorological fact. Um, so those are just a few of the, of the examples that I talk about in the book. You are listening to Strongly Connected Components, an interview with David Richeson. I, of course, am your host, Samuel Hansen, popping up in the middle of this interview to remind you to go check out acmescience.com. It's where you can find blog articles with links to everything that we talk about in these interviews, as well as articles that I just decide to put up in the middle of the week because I really want you all to see them. You can also find links there to combinations and permutations, acmescience.com's more comedic look into what really is going on inside the heads of mathematicians. It's mostly me and a couple of my friends talking about math, but I really think that you might like it and you should probably go check it out. Now back to the interview. Well, now I'm going to make a huge jump uh, back now okay. and and ask you a, a, a question that really interests me whenever I talk to a, a fellow math person, uh, whether they're an actual mathematician or just someone who's interested in what originally made you become interested in mathematics at, at, insofar as it's something that you decided uh, that you wanted to study and do for the rest of your life? Um, it's hard to it's hard to think back. There was no pivotal moment. Um, actually, I've always loved math since I was really young. Um, actually, my, uh, my mother was cleaning out the basement, and she found some old report cards uh, of mine. And, and uh, my first grade report card had a little comment box, and the teacher says, Dave especially loves math. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so it even started then. I think, um, you know, growing up, I knew I wanted to be some sort of scientist. And even going to, to college, I... Uh, toyed with the idea of being a physicist. I, I uh, took a minor and then a little bit beyond a minor. Um, but it was just the, the mathematics courses just kept calling out to me. And it was the, you know, it was the, the elegance and the, um, the, the logical uh, foundations of the subject that, that I really loved. Um, another thing which uh, I often uh, think about is as a child, I was just infatuated with puzzles and games, you know, like Games Magazine or, you know, those Mensa books or the, uh, you know, Martin Gardner books and things like that. Um, I just loved reading those, those types of books. And uh, now I know that that was really math that I was doing. And so, um, uh, so I think it, it's, it's been there all along. It, just, it took me a while to realize that that's what I love. Well, I mean, it's, it's, I'm, at least I'm personally happy that you found it. Otherwise, I wouldn't have your uh, Twitter account to read. Now, uh, your 
research has a lot to do with uh, the topology, of, of course, and also the uh, interplay of dynamical systems and topology. Now, I honestly don't know enough about uh, those subjects to delve very deep into your research, but if you could just give a little bit basic idea of, of how do you study dynamical systems in topology? Yeah, so I, I study dynamical systems, and unlike some mathematical disciplines, dynamical systems is ex an extremely broad discipline. So if you had two dynamicists in a room, uh, chances are they wouldn't, uh, uh, they wouldn't have a whole lot in common. Um, my particular area, I guess I should say what dynamical systems is. Uh, in, my, uh, in my context, we're looking at a function from uh, a space to itself, and, um, and what this will uh, give you are iterations of points. So you can think of a point hopping around on a surface as we continue to iterate uh, a function. And questions that uh, dynamicists ask would be, are there fixed points? Are there periodic points? Are there attractors? Are there repellers? Uh, is there chaos? Um, things like this. Um, and people have developed all sorts of techniques for um, determining whether those things exist or not. Um, my particular area is very topological, which means that uh, we don't have things like derivatives uh, of these functions to, to play with. Um, and so I study a, a particular area um, called commonly indexed theory. And this uh, talks about if you look at these regions and let's say they, they stretch in one direction and contract in another direction or they overlap each other in a very certain way, um, you can use techniques from topology uh, to use this very crude um, object called the Conley index to conclude relatively strong things about your dynamical system. So existence of fixed points or existence of periodic points or existence of chaos. Um, in recent years, people have used uh, these ideas to um, study dynamical systems on computers. And, and uh, when I say that, it's not um, approximations of a dynamical system, but actual rigorous mathematics where you can use a computer to prove that there's chaos or prove that there are um, fixed points, um, things like that. Um, so this topological approach uh, enables that, that kind of analysis. And uh, so I think that's a relatively hot field these days, sort of computational dynamical systems. Well, I'm going to skip around a bit more again because I can't seem to uh, stay <laughs> on one thread. And actually, sure. uh, the, talk to you about uh, your blog, Division by Zero, which has uh, been uh, honored uh, quite a bit over the past year. Uh, finished sixth out of 36, I wanted to say. Uh, for one uh, blog contest as well as being shortlisted on one of the best uh, educational blogs on the internet. Uh, do I have those correct? Uh, yeah, I think that's right, yep. Okay. Now, uh, now it's uh, the tagline for, for the blog, and I should point out it's uh, divis by zero, D-I-V-I-S-B-Y-Z-E-R-O dot com, uh, and your Twitter handle is div by zero. It's Division right. by Zero, a blog about uh, math, puzzles, teaching, and academic technology. Now, that's a, that's a rather broad uh, list of topics to write about on a single blog. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the, 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 blog, uh, the blog idea also came out of this Willoughby Fellows Program. Uh, to be honest, I would have thought, going into this, I would have thought I would be the last person to write a blog. I mean, when I thought of blogs, I thought of, you know, uh, politician, you know, political wannabes sort of 
you know, shooting down various policy decisions, et cetera. Um, uh, but what I realized is that, you know, that blogs can be useful places for sharing things that you know. Um, I find that it's also, it's like a journal for me. You know, so if I do something interesting in a classroom, uh, then I can record it there. And so it might be interesting for other people, but it's also interesting for me to be able to go back the next time I teach a course and see what I did and see what worked well and what didn't. Um, it's also, uh, it slowly builds up uh, a following. And so I get this community of uh, people who read my blog, who uh, post interesting comments or send me emails about interesting uh, ideas that they have. And um, so in a way, I kind of feel like it's selfish. It's just me talking about things that I like. But, uh, but I think other people have found it interesting. And, um, and so, it, uh, and I, I've, uh, I should say with Twitter and uh, writing my blog and all this stuff, I've, I've adopted a, a uh, policy that it can't be stressful for me. So, you know, <laughs> but if, I'm, if I'm too busy and can't write on my blog or if I'm too busy and can't, you know, check my Twitter uh, account, then I'm not going to let that stress me out. So it's, uh, it's you know, it's uh, an extra bonus to what I do and, and it's supposed to enhance my life and my job and not be a source of stress. And I, I think I've done a pretty good job of riding that, uh, that fine line. Yeah, I could uh, probably deal a bit with... Uh, starting to do that myself. <laughs> now, on there, you do have a lot of just a lot of different uh, ways of of talking uh, talking on your blog. I mean, looking down, there's there's posts about how to curve exams, posts on LaTeX, posts on card tricks, on graph theory, uh, you know, links to various other math things on the website. Which of these posts do you find that you get the best sort of reaction to? Um, that is a good question. Uh, I would say the, the, um, the post that has, I'd say probably by far the most number of hits is the uh, post on how to curve grades. So continually that, there are a lot of people who, who view that. And, and this is, you know, it probably comes up in Google uh, you know, when people are looking how to curve grades. And so I think it's probably non-mathematicians who are teaching a class and their students bombed an exam, and how do I deal with this? And so uh, in terms of most hits, uh, I would say it's that one. Um, that is a good question of, of which gets the most reaction. I, I think some of the mathematical ones uh, I, I would hope people find interesting, uh, but they may not feel obliged to make comments on them. Uh, I think some of the teaching-related ones, um, those are the ones that open themselves up for more of a conversation, you know, you know, I did this in the classroom, and it, you know, this worked well, and this didn't work well, and then you know, a bunch of my followers will chime in and say, oh, that's a great idea, or you know, check out so-and-so who did this, or when I did it, this happened. And, um, so I'd say as far as uh, you know, measuring it by comments, I would say that the teaching-related uh, topics are the, are the ones that get the most action. Yeah, if you type in uh, curve grades, you are the uh, second hit on Google, wow. and if you type in how to curve grades, you are the first hit. Wow, how about that? <laughs> <laughs> well, I have, I have uh, one, one final question uh, sure. for you today, and that is about, uh, honestly, I mean, as much as I like all the math things, all the links to, to, your, to your work that's online, the coolest thing I think that you have on your website is the geographical CV. Yeah. Uh, I was wondering, uh, where exactly did you come up with the idea to uh, kind of mash up Google Maps and your speaking appearances 
in order to uh, you know give this nice visual representation of what you've done? Um, I you know what I just happened to stumble on that feature of, of Google Maps that you can you know like you said create a mashup you can you can drop down markers and you can add tags and I think photos and videos if you if you'd like to. Um, but it was just actually one weekend, uh, one evening, I just spent hours uh, you know, going back through my records and looking at all the places I spoke and what the title of the talk was and just dropping tags on there, um, which reminds me I need to update it. I think I've, the last few talks are not up there. Uh, but it's sort of fun and it's cool to see, you know, sort of see the geographic, you know, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's history and it's also visual uh, you know, where I've been. It's, it's fun. Okay, well, uh, thank you so much for talking. Everybody should uh, Google Dave Richeson uh, <laughs> and look at the first like seven or eight links on the Google page because they are all your work. And thank you I very want, much. Yes, uh, thank you. I just It's been really fantastic talking to you. Thank you. I really appreciate it, Sam. Well, that is it for another episode of Strongly Connected Components. If you want to leave any feedback about this episode or anything else, uh, just email me over at samuel at acmescience.com. That's samuel at acmescience.com. The same email address that none of my family email me at. It's mostly because none of my family email me. They would email me at that address. You can also check out acmescience.com for more information about Dave Richeson or head over to acmescience.com slash forum in order to talk about this show or anything else to do with Acme Science, such as our other show combinations and permutations. The theme music was allowed for use by Hard and Firm, and it's the song Pi. The interstitial and outro music is from SP12, who you can find over at opsound.org. This podcast, like always, is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution share-alike license. So take all these wonderful things that Dave Richardson said this time around and remix them into an awesome dance trance music sensation really spread the gospel of mathematics through house music people thanks for listening